And when you read through the entire dialogue, you get a taste of the diversity of opinion concerning Jesus. So just follow with me. If you have your Bibles open there, you'll see it for yourselves. In John chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is called a good man. Also in that verse, uh, he is said to be leading people astray. In verse 20, he is said to have a demon. In verse 40, Jesus is called the prophet, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 18. In verse 41, Jesus is called the Christ or the Messiah. In chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus refers to himself with a title that's from the book of Daniel and the one he used most often for himself, the Son of Man. In 8.41, Jesus is accused of being born out of sexual immorality. And we have a word for that that I won't say. In verse 48, Jesus is called a Samaritan, which is a derogatory term, and has a demon. And then in verse 58, he says this about himself. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And so he is calling himself God. So, so we have this wide spectrum. We, we've got Jesus calling himself God. We've got him being some kind of prophet. We've got him being some kind of good man. We've got him being somebody who leads people astray. And we've got him uh, with somebody who has a demon. And when you look at these three chapters as a whole, chapter 6, which we looked at in the last two weeks, and then chapter 7 and 8... Uh, They really have a a similarity. They're both long conversations that end in a similar way. In chapter 6, there's this long conversation. It really lasts over a couple of days. Remember, this is the feeding of the 5,000. And then the next day, the same crowd comes back and they have this conversation with Jesus. And you remember, as we talked about that, we began the chapter with 5,000 and actually probably more like 15,000 very excited, very enthusiastic followers. And we ended the chapter with 12 people. So we have 15,000 enthusiastic followers of Jesus. And after he gives this sermon, we have 12. Then in chapters 7 and 8, again, one, one long conversation Jesus goes to the temple. He he eventually does go to Jerusalem. And it's a time where there are a number of pilgrims. So there's thousands of people streaming in. They're primarily headed towards the temple. Jesus goes to the temple. He's teaching in the temple. And with all these people who are longing to see Jesus and hear from Jesus, when he ends his sermon, they want to kill him. So this isn't a good trajectory here for Jesus. He he can get the crowd of 15,000 down to 12 in one sermon. He can get the people who are eager to hear him to turn into, hey, we want to pick up stones and kill him. And so as I looked through these these chapters together, I had a couple of reactions. One is that John, the, the, the writer of the letter, he's already clearly stated what his purpose is. He says it in verse one, or chapter 1. He says it at the end of the book, John chapter 20. These things are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you would have life eternal. And so many of you all 
uh, would believe that same thing. And when you sit down with somebody and you begin to explain the gospel to somebody, you should anticipate a very wide reaction of responses that people would give you. I mean, you've had a particular response to Christ, but when you're coming in, you're beginning a conversation, which is the purpose of going through this book is so that you could take the information and go talk to somebody. You could anticipate a very wide spectrum of belief from somebody believing that Jesus may be actually who he said he was or Jesus himself may be a demon possessed. And so we should anticipate the same wide spectrum but, but no matter how wide the reaction may be, I think it's important that we understand that one of the reactions in the text is really an impossible position to hold. And, of course, that's not going to get somebody into the kingdom. But when you're talking to people, there, there are ways that you can say, well, let's at least narrow it down. And one of the things you can narrow down is probably the, one of the most popular thoughts about who Jesus is, and that is, well, he was a good man. And that's really, when you read through the text, that's not one of the options that Jesus leaves open to us. He can't be just a good man. But you'll hear that pretty frequently. Even just this week, I, I turned on my television right at the very end of the, uh, of the Fox newscast, the Bill O'Reilly show. And really all I heard was just sort of the, the last part of a line that he was explaining. I think he was responding to somebody's email or something about the holiday season. And, and he was responding to this person. And this is what he said. He said, look, either you believe that Jesus was the son of God or you believe that he was a good man. And with all due respect to Bill O'Reilly and his fans that might be here this morning. The second is not really an option. It's not really a credible option. It's not really possible that Jesus could just be or simply be a good man. Let me give you just a few reasons. First, if Jesus was a good man, he had a massive ego. I mean, he was completely uh, egocentric. He's constantly saying, hey, you need to be looking at me. I'm the most important person you're ever going to meet. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives his very first sermon. Imagine this. He, he's gotten just a little bit of notoriety. and he, he comes into the synagogue and he's asked to be the preacher that day. And they hand him the text because they're reading through the scripture. And he opens up the text and he reads Isaiah 61. And everybody's eagerly looking forward to what he's going to have to say about Isaiah 61. And this is what he does. He takes the pulpit and he says, you know, Isaiah 61 is talking all about me. Now, imagine if I did that. I took an Old Testament passage and said, hey, you know what? It's fulfilled right now by me standing up here and talking about it. A good man wouldn't do that. In John chapter 5, we, all, we saw this a few weeks ago. He says to his Jewish audience, hey, you know about Moses? Yeah. You know about what he wrote about? Yeah. Well, he was really writing about me. John chapter 8, at the end of this chapter... You know, Abraham, the fa father Abraham, who had many sons and many sons, you know the song? I'm one of them and so are you and let's all praise the Lord or some, that's something like that. If you were an old vacation Bible school person, you know that song. 
Hey, you know Father Abraham? Yeah, yeah. Well, before him, I was. And everything he was talking about was t- saying, I'm coming. So, so a good man, you would not say somebody who's just a good man would have that kind of ego, would be drawing all that attention to himself. Secondly, he's able to forgive sins. And we can look at this in other times. But Jesus looks at people he's never even met and says, I can forgive your sins. Could a good man do that? Would a good person look at someone they've never met and said, trust me, your sins are forgiven? Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. Would a good man come to a group like this and say, hey, you know what? When you've seen me, it's just like looking at God. It's the same thing. And so although you can't convince someone into the kingdom and you can anticipate a very wide spectrum of belief, it's helpful to understand that some of the beliefs really just aren't logical beliefs. It's possible that Jesus is God. It's possible that he is a great deceiver or he's from Satan or has a demon. Those those could be possible. But to just to say, well, I don't know, but I'm sure he's a good man. That, that's really not a possible position to hold on to. John Stott says it this way. The claims are there. They do not in themselves constitute evidence of deity. The claims may have been false, but some explanation of them must be found. We cannot regard Jesus as simply a great teacher if he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, namely himself. And C.S. Lewis, in a very famous passage, says this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or something else like a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. So as you're talking through the book of the Bible, as you're talking to people about your faith and they say, hey, he's a good man, you can gently sort of say, hey, that's really not one of the options. The second sort of reaction I had to these opening chapters here and how things unfolded is this hostility. There's a there's a growing hostility and you'll see it through the book of John. And obviously it ends at the crucifixion. Uh, But as we we see this, we see the root of the hostility in this chapter, chapter seven, verse seven. Here's the the root of the hostility against Jesus. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about about it, that its works are evil. So, so Jesus is is talking to his own brothers. His brothers are urging him to go to Jerusalem for this feast that we'll talk about in a minute. And he says, hey, you know, I just can't go because the world hates me. It, it doesn't hate you. See, the world is evil and it hates me when I go out into the world, but it doesn't hate you. So how might you rephrase that? It's not pretty to rephrase that, is it? See, I can't go out into the world because the world is evil and it hates me, but you can go on out because you're 
evil. See, there's no contrast when you go out into the world. You're part of the system. You're part of the problem. But when when Jesus says, when I go out of the world, I'm shining a a piercing light into this dark place. and, And nobody wants their darkness to be pierced by this light. But when you go out, no problem. You, you can understand that there would be a rub between Jesus and his younger brothers, can you not, when he says that? Hey, you guys go ahead because you're evil, but I can't go. And so Jesus is, is saying something here, and he's not only creating this hostility, or he's not only uh, involved where there's this hostility with his brothers, but also, as we've seen before and we'll see again, with the people that he interfaces with. See, Jesus can't go public in this way because the world hates the light and no one wants their evil exposed. He says it this way in John chapter 3. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And the reason I'm bringing this up is for those who, uh, of us who have... Um, given ourselves to the Lord and he he has come and put his light in us in John chapter 17 Jesus prays for his disciples and not just his 12 disciples he's praying for all the disciples who are going to follow after him and he says this in his prayer father I have given them your word see Jesus is the word now by the Holy Spirit. The word is in us. I've given you given given them this word and the world has. What would you anticipate? I'm I'm given them the word. I'm going to send them out into the world. And when they go out into the world with this world, the world has. Hated them. So, So you and I can anticipate not by everyone. But as you go out now representing Christ, now having your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. That's possible. But it's also possible that when they see the light in you, they hate you. you you've had a life transforming encounter. You're you're moving out into the world. Jesus says, as you sent me, father, into the world, so I'm sending them into the world, we can anticipate some hostility. And I am certain that many of you here are very familiar with this hostility. You've had some life-transforming encounter with Christ. And previously, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your spouse, And you understand it. They just love the darkness. And you, I'm not judging. I'm just saying you understand it because you were there. And now when you come back into that group, what happens? It's not always very pretty. It's most painful when you come back in. It's your own spouse or your own parent. But it may be a group of friends. Hey, hey, remember, we all we all we all used to love the darkness. But then you have come into the light and you as the light come back into that group. What happens? Oh, so you're better than us now. Anybody heard that? 
Oh, you're a Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. Oh, you're the little Jesus freak person now, I guess. What, 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 what's the translation of that? I love the darkness still. And I do not want you and I resent you coming back in and shining light back into this life that I'm trying to hide. That's the real translation. And, of course, you may not be trying to do that, but you're emanating the life and the light of Christ. And it's very difficult to move back into that situation without being offensive to some people. And that's a difficult spot, especially if it's your family or your close friends. I never forget coming back from Windy Gap in the summer and we had traveled all night, and it's now 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning when we arrived back in the Longleaf parking lot on the bus with kids. And so I'm at the very end, I'm saying, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough. As soon as you step off the bus, it's going to get tough. Because you may have had a life-transforming encounter with Christ, and your parents pick you up, and they're, they, they might be hostile. You might have some friends that pick you up that want the old person to come back out of the bus, don't want the new person. And this one kid walks out of the bus, walks out of the bus. His four or five high school buddies that I wish had come to camp weren't there. They're there. They've got a, a, a cooler full of beer and they couldn't wait for their friends to come back, their friend to come back. They get them in the car and they head off to the beach for a good time. You see, that's going to be a hard spot. Hey, hey, I've got a different light now. I mean, you think he got another invitation? Think that was, oh, that was fun. No, no, that wasn't fun. And Jesus understands that because he can't get his own brothers to believe in him. Can you imagine that? Jesus can't get his family to believe in who he says he is. And so he understands the hostility that can happen inside of a family. And I think just as believers, we need to to anticipate that hostility. Paul understands it when he says this. Now God uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. We're like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance. They're rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. We should anticipate that. Not everyone's going to react that way. But some people, as you bring the light out into the world where you're supposed to be, some people are going to have this hostile reaction. Well, I want to just spend the remainder of our sermon here uh, just thinking about a few things from these first seven verses. This is the uh, Feast of the Booths. It was one of the major festivals that happened in the Jewish calendar. It it sort of marked two different events that were sort of pushed together. One was just the annual harvest. It came at the end of the harvest, and so they were thankful to God for their bounty from the earth. And then they were also remembering God's provision when they were wandering in the desert, that he had provided food for them. And so they bring this together in one week-long festival, and when the people were out in the wanderings, they lived in sort of tent-like structures. They called them tabernacles or booths. And so even people, the pilgrims, would come to Jerusalem, and they basically set up a little campsite and say, remember when our people lived like this? And so it was called the Feast of 
the booze. And so this festival lasted a week and there were two rituals, two different rituals that were performed during the festival. One was drawing water out of a drinkable source and then pouring it on the altar. And another one was a lamp lighting ritual. So we're not surprised that it's during these rituals that Jesus stands up and says, is anyone thirsty? Come, let him come to me and he can have life giving water. We're not surprised that it's during this festival that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He's he's using these very common symbols, the things that the people wouldn't understand and say, hey, those things, they're really pointing towards me. And it's to this festival that Jesus's brothers are urging him to go. Jesus is living up in the Galilee area, which is north of Jerusalem. All the festivals are happening at Jerusalem. And they're saying, hey, go down to the festival. But we know that their motive from verse five, we know the root of their motive is really driven from unbelief. So whatever their motives may be, they're not pure. There's no pure motive here by the brothers. They're urging them to go to this festival out of their unbelief. And apparently, as we look through the text, it seems as if Jesus's brothers had previously witnessed some of the miracles or some of the works that Jesus had done. And so they're urging them. And in verse three, they're saying, hey, you need to go down to Jerusalem. There's going to be lots of people at this pilgrimage and you need to do some of the works down there. You've, you've mostly been doing it as a, sort of a private thing. But if, if you want to be large, if you really want to get on the stage, if you want everyone to see you, you, you need to go to this festival. You need to do something spectacular in public so people can recognize who you are. If, if you really want to be the son of God, if you really are the son of God, you need to get out in front of a crowd and you didn't need to do the spectacular. Have you heard that before? Where else in the Bible? Some of you know. In the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and says, oh, OK, so you're the son of God. I've read about you in the Old Testament. And so he takes Jesus to the, the very top of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, hey, do something spectacular, like throw yourself off in front of all these people. And angels from heaven will come and grab you and slowly lift you to the ground. And then everybody will really know who you are. The temptation comes now not from Satan, but it comes from Jesus's own family. And one guy said, uh, one, one commentator said, well, if, if he was able to resist the temptation from, his, from Satan, certainly it would have been easier to resist the one from his family. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know. When you got your brothers or your family talking in your life, that's pretty tough. Now, look, I don't, I don't want to say... It, Anything about Satan and his toughness, but it's difficult. He's in a difficult spot. But see, Jesus already fought this battle one time. He's ready for it again. And he looks at his family and his family is saying, hey, it's it's time for the spectacular. It's time to be a rock star. It's time to to broadcast yourself. It's time to get out there and be on the, the big stage so everybody can 
can see who you are. And Jesus could have said to his brothers the same thing that he said to Peter. He could have looked at his brothers and say, get behind me, Satan. See, you don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of men in mind. Your motive comes from an unbelief. You're, you're trying to get something done, whatever your motive is, out of a worldly way. And I'm trying to get something done. It's not going to be done the way that you want. Now, I know this is first century, but, but try to imagine living in a culture that's hungry for the spectacular. And I know this is John chapter 7, and we're, we're back here in the first few years at the turn of the century, but try to imagine living in a culture that craves celebrity. Try to imagine living in a culture where everybody's trying to leave their footprint. Living in a culture where you're encouraged to broadcast yourself. You need to get your 15 minutes of fame. And, and however you broadcast yourself, you should calculate how many followers or friends or fans you have. There should be a little tab over here that tells you how many people know you exist. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? And Jesus comes into this culture and he comes into our culture and he says, I, you know what? I'm going in a completely opposite direction than you're going. I'm not interested in using the, the world's ways. I mean, my worldview to get up, you have to go down. If you want to be first in my worldview, then you have to be last. If you want to be greatest, then you have to be the servant. See, everything about me is the complete opposite of how you all would think in the direction that you would go. And I will go to Jerusalem and I will do something that will be truly spectacular. And what did he do that was truly spectacular in Jerusalem? He, the creator Allowed the creation, the, the creator allowed the creation to put him to death. The son of God died. That's what was spectacular. That's what we lift up. That's what's going to draw all men to Jesus Christ. Not the way that we think it happens, but the way he does it. But the hunger for this human approval is both incredibly powerful and deeply defective. Jesus understands that as long as his brother's core was human approval, then they're just never going to see him. And again, we don't know what Jesus' brother's motives are. It's possible that they could have just been sick and tired of Jesus. I mean, if you don't like the light shining in your life and you have to live with it, that's difficult. And they might just like, hey, would you go do some spectacular things and, and then you'll get enough people angry at you eventually because that's the way it happens. And maybe they can sort of just get rid of you. That's possible motive. Another possible motive is, is, hey, we'll all go down to Jerusalem. You'll do something spectacular. Thousands of people will come and we just happen to be, well, I'm his brother. We kind of step into the limelight. You do something spectacular, but, but I would like to use your glory to give me a little glory. But you see, really, whatever the motive is, it was a self-centered motive. I want something. I'm tired of something. I'm trying to use Jesus to get what I want. 
And I wonder if you might say that about yourself. You're so hungry for human approval that you'd be willing to use Jesus to get what you want. And I thought I'd give some application points, but then people always say, Paul, I feel like you're talking directly to me during the application points. So I'll just give the application points to me. Okay? And you can form your own questions. Paul Phillips, do you want Jesus or are you using Jesus? I mean, do you want Jesus or are you using Jesus to get what you want, like popularity, influence, financial security, comfort, leaving a footprint, heaven? Are you really hungry for Jesus? And, Paul, do you see his trajectory or are you really hungry for yourself or hungry for human approval? And you really have a totally different trajectory in mind. But you're just using Jesus to foster your own trajectory, your own goals. So you have to answer those kinds of questions for yourself as I do for myself. One final observation here. And I wish we could continue on through this text, but... In verse 10, you, if you keep reading, you see that Jesus eventually does go to the feast. After this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, but not publicly, in private. And he went up and you find him teaching instead of doing something spectacular. He goes up in private to teach instead of going up in public to do something spectacular. And I think this is an important closing point. If you read through the Bible, you'll quickly see that signs, miracles, wonders, the spectacular, don't have a very good rate of return. I mean, you might draw a crowd, but at the end of the day, you don't have a lot of faithful people at the end of the sign. You might have a lot of people who want more signs, but you don't have a lot of people who want more of Jesus or more of God. And you see it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You remember the the Israelites, they'd seen all these signs, all these plagues. They'd seen the the Red Sea open up. They'd gotten across, and, and as soon as it's all over, they say, you know what, we need some more signs. We're really not sure, God. We think you've just brought us out here in this desert to die to to make sure we know that you're really real. Just one more sign. And he gives one more sign. And a few days later, we just need one more sign. And it happens all the years. John chapter 6. I love this. Right after the feeding of the 5,000. They they wait a night and a day. They come and find Jesus the next day. And Jesus begins to explain who he is. And they say, well, we'll believe who you are, who you say you are, if you just give us a sign. I just gave you a sign. I just fed everyone in the crowd. Well, we need another sign. So, so when you read through the Bible, you see that this doesn't have a very good rate of return, these Using the spectacular. And Jesus says it so clearly in Luke chapter 16. He, he gives us this great story between Lazarus, who's a rich man, and 
the poor beggar. You remember that? Or the rich man and the poor beggar named Lazarus. And it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus uses. And when the rich man dies, he goes to hell. When Lazarus dies, he goes to heaven. And apparently in the story, Abraham can talk to uh, the rich man. And the rich man says, oh, I, I've wasted my life and I, I want you to I want you to send Lazarus back. Would you bring him back from the grave and tell Lazarus, the poor beggar, to go speak to my family who's still alive so they understand the torment that I'm in? And Abraham says, well, no, they have the Bible. And he specifically says they have Moses and the prophets. That's a way of saying they have the Old Testament scriptures. And Lazarus looks at Abraham and says, that's not going to do it. The Bible's not going to be good enough. We need the spectacular. We need Lazarus. And Abraham responds back, if they don't listen to the Bible, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, what Jesus understands is that the most potent Force for life transformation is the word of God. It's not that he can't use or doesn't use the spectacular, but he understands that's got a very poor rate of return. But the word of God is living and active. And that's why the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who would believe. It's why Zwingli stood up and he decided, forget all these commentators. I'm just going to preach the Bible. It's why Jesus rejects his brother's plan of being spectacular instead of he goes to teach. And it's why at Christ Community Church we do sermon series like this. This is your hope. This is what transforms people's lives. It's the Bible. Faith comes from hearing. And it's very possible that in a very unspectacular way, in a way that I couldn't see, that God's using his preached word to wash over your life and change your life. You know, I can't see it, and I'm sure when it was happening to me, my preacher couldn't see it or my friend couldn't see it. But it's possible that just today you've been coming to Christ Community Church, you've been hearing the Word of God, and you can't quite explain it other than to say, it's like I hear God speaking to me. He's speaking right to my soul. And and this may be the day for you to say, uh, whatever I've formerly believed in Jesus, now I'm trusting him as my Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a great passage. There's a place for everybody to step in and ask themselves a question of what they think about who you are, where they are on the spectrum Nobody here could leave and say, I don't know. They have to have some kind of opinion about who Jesus is. I pray for those who are here that are walking from this place. Knowing that you're living in them, but they're walking back into a a, a school. They're walking back into a, a family. 
They're walking back into a marriage. They're walking back into a workplace. They're walking back onto a team, whatever it may be. And they know that some of the people there are going to be hostile. Pray that they would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, the Word of God is powerful powerful for salvation. And there may be some people here that are ready to say, I'm trusting in Jesus. Lord, for those who are here who are really just using Jesus to forward their own agenda, may they know that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for men who have preached the word. May we take what we have here, Lord, uh, not only our time and our money, but our access to the word and spread it out to our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.